Likute Sichais, Volume 16, Sicha 5, Parshas Vaera. There's a disagreement between Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Akiva regarding the spiritual intensity of the plagues that God brought upon Egypt. Rabbi Eliezer says that every plague was a four-part plague. Rabbi Akiva says that each plague was a composite of five. In the Kolbe, in the explanation of the Haggadah, this is explained in the name of a master teacher, that Rabbi Eliezer's opinion is that the plagues impacted the four essential elements, fire, the earth, the water, and the air, of everything that they struck, not only striking the final fully merged product, what was being struck, but each individual element that made up this thing. Thus, each plague was made up of four strikes. For example, when the water turned to blood, not only the primary element of water was struck, but the other elements existent in water, the element of air, which could be steam, the capacity for water to nurture the earth, and for water to become boiled by fire. Two were all impacted and struck by the plague of dumb in all four strikes. Rabbi Akiva says it went beyond this, that the plague struck the very essence of the creative matter of things. So the four elements of water were struck and the essential matter of existence of all things was struck as well. The purpose of every plague, as you hear in the word maka, to strike, was to strike and to break Egypt, which helps us understand that these two opinions and ideas regarding how intensely they struck the matter are an agreement that A, not only the visible aspect of something was struck, but the concealed matter and essence of things was struck as well, and that B, whether the plague struck the very creative matter or only the aspects that were of the four elements depends on how deep the impurities of Egypt went. That the determining factor in how deeply the plague struck would be how deeply the strike needed to be in order to break the impurity of Egypt. This idea that the impurities in Egypt penetrated the very essence of things, the very essence of Egypt, and the ensuing disagreement we mentioned is reflected as all discussions in the agadic realm and in the esoteric in the non-mystical and tangible aspects of Torah, like in Jewish law, specifically in the discussion around the prohibition of chametz, which is based upon the idea of removing the impurities of Egypt. Chametz is prohibited not only for eating and for pleasure, but also has the unique parameter of a prohibition of seeing or possessing chametz. And this is why we burn the chametz before Pesach. The difference between these three, the prohibition of eating, the prohibition of deriving pleasure, and the prohibition of owning and seeing chametz, 
is that in that the prohibition of eating something, it's a product and it's completed and ready to eat straight state. The prohibition doesn't lie in that it is a foodstuff, but the prohibition in deriving pleasure from something touches on the essence of the thing, which explains why something may be unfit to be eaten according to Jewish law, but it is permitted to derive pleasure from it. Technically, if something is bad and prohibited, shouldn't the prohibition be on deriving any pleasure from it? But that isn't the case. And this is explained as we said, the prohibition against eating something means that the bad is only external to the elements of that thing. It's what has made it edible, and thus it remains permitted for pleasure because the essence of it, the individual elements, have not become bad. And when there is a prohibition to derive benefit from something, it tells us that it's something that is already formed as an object from which benefit can be derived. So it's still somewhat about the externals. But chametz is different because the prohibition against chametz is that it may not be found in a Jew's possession, even if it will not be used at all. This tells us that the essence of this chametz is bad. The form it's in makes no difference. Its mere existence in one's property is forbidden. Let's look at the mitzvah of removing chametz. There's a disagreement here as well between Rabbi Yehuda and the sages. Rabbi Yehuda says that removing chametz means burning it. Sages say you can disperse it in the wind or throw it into the sea to get rid of it. The rugged shover explains the disagreement. According to Rabbi Yehuda, one must destroy the essence of the chametz, and thus it must be burnt. Because if you only crumble it up and disperse it in the wind, particles remain and the essence of the chametz still exists. Sages, however, say that it's sufficient to nullify the form of the chametz, which one does by taking away the possibility of eating it or enjoying it, and that can be done by just letting it crumble and blow away in the wind. Understandably, the point to which one does away with chametz depends on how intensely chametz something is. If the very essence of something is chametz, doing away with it requires that the essence of the item of chametz become nullified. If it's an external aspect of something that renders it chametz and not the essence of it, it's sufficient to just do away with it so that there's no longer a possibility of eating it or deriving pleasure from it. But the essence, which is not chametz, has no direct prohibition. These two opinions have a direct correlation to the two opinions of Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Akiva about the plagues. Rabbi Eliezer, who says that every plague was a composite of four strikes, and that the object and its four elements in potential creates a complete object, and all four elements of it were struck, is similar to the opinion of the sages who say it's sufficient to discard the chametz by dispersing it in the wind. It's the form of the object that must be done away with, the fact that it's edible and can bring some form of pleasure. In Rabbi Akiva's position, that every plague has five strikes, striking also the very essential matter of something, 
is because his opinion is aligned with the opinion of Rabbi Yehuda that getting rid of chametz requires burning it so that it is completely destroyed to its very essence. Parallel to this discussion about two methods of getting rid of chametz, in other words, is it about the essence of that which is chametz, whether Torah prohibits the very existence of chametz, irrespective of what form it's in, or if the external final object of chametz that makes it usable as food and can bring some pleasure, the discussion exists in the two ways in which the prohibition of deriving pleasure manifests, again pointing to if the bad is deeper even than just the final product itself. One, if the pleasure a person may have reverts to the possibility of a person eating food as a result of this pleasure, where the money one earns will always bring one back to the enjoyment of food, and that would include every benefit that a person might have, that it will revert back to the food he acquires with this benefit. Or perhaps the food is used in a way where no pleasure is derived, like feeding the hummus food to stray dogs, where one cannot suggest that the person derived any pleasure that reverted back to eating for the person. In the Talmud Yerushalmi, in the Tractate of Psachim, there's a disagreement about feeding one's hummus to stray dogs. One opinion is that it's permissible, and one opinion is that it's not, with a reasoning that the verse, and one should not eat hummus, further prohibits the usage of the hummus to feed stray dogs. One can say that this disagreement, too, is connected to the question regarding how strongly the prohibition of hummus is connected to the structure of the food or to the essence of it. If the prohibition depends on the actual product, then the prohibition against deriving enjoyment as it's connected to the actual item is limited to the type of enjoyment related to food and eating. But if the prohibition is dependent on the essence of something, with no actual regard for the final product, then the prohibition of enjoyment is self-standing and includes every aspect of this, however it's used, even usage that will not revert to eating. Accordingly, we can posit that what Rabbi Yaisi Haglili says, quoted in the Mechilta, just before the two opinions stated earlier of Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Akiva, that the Egyptians were smitten with only 10 makos, but at the sea they were struck with 50 makos, is because, according to his opinion, hummus may be used for pleasure so long as that pleasure is not in the eating of it. And the prohibition is in the formed food object, which translates to the impurities of Egypt only affecting the external aspect of things or the external aspect of Egypt. And so each plague struck Egypt only at a level of already, already blended elements, in other words, a final product. According to what we've discussed regarding the disagreement of Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Akiva and its dependence upon how deeply the impurity of Egypt penetrated the land of Egypt and everything in it, we can explain the reason for the differences in the Midrashic opinions about the four exiles that we have experienced as a people, the exiles of Babylonia, of Persia, of Greece, and the exile of Edo. The reason that Egypt is generally not mentioned among the calculation of these four kingdoms and exiles 
is because the Egyptian exile, in the words of the Arizal in his written work, Likutei Torah, was equal to them all and worse yet, and therefore is not mentioned as one of the four exiles, as it was on another level completely. On the other hand, there are sources where the exile of Egypt is mentioned as the first among these four exiles. And we can posit that these two opinions, too, are connected to the difference we keep coming back to, how deeply the impurity of Egypt affected all of Egypt. To explain the reason it is not mentioned when it is not, and that is in most sources that calculate the four exiles, is because each of the four kingdoms and exiles is manifested by one letter of the tetragrammaton of God's name, the Yud, the He, the Vav, and the He. And the exile of Egypt is represented in the point of the Yud of God's name, rendering it in a different category altogether. The Arizal teaches that the four elements of fire, water, air, and earth are a manifestation of the four letters of the Tetragrammaton. Everything is a manifestation, in fact, of the four letters of the Tetragrammaton. Everything that exists in this world is a manifestation of the divine name. But the point of the Yud, representing the divine attribute of Kesser, represents the power of creative matter. This then means that the four exiles are represented in the four elements, and the Egyptian exile, in a category of its own, did indeed affect the very essence of creative matter. And the teachings of our sages, which mentions Egypt among the four exiles, is based upon the opinion that the Egyptian exile reflects the divine attribute of Chochmah, which would mean that while indeed this exile is the root of every ensuing exile, it's a root that inculcates all other exiles, and according to that understanding, the impurity of Egypt affected only the aspects of Egypt where the four elements are fused and not beyond them to the original creative matter. When we turn to the discussion of the exile and redemption from Egypt on a spiritual scale, Egypt represents limitation and boundaries. An Egyptian exile thus means that the divine service of a Jew is limited. It's restricted. And leaving Egypt in one's divine service is the experience of leaving those limitations, including the limitations inherent in one's own spirituality. This is really what the disagreement between Rabbi Elias and Rabbi Akiva is about. When they question whether the plague struck four elements or deeper yet, the original creative matter. Spiritually, do we have to experience leaving the Egypt of our ten soul powers alone as they're divided into a further spiritual four categories, again manifesting from the four letters of the Tetragrammaton? In other words, one's divine service in the realm of thought, speech, and action, a reflection of the sphere of Malchus, or one's divine service around their emotional attributes, or the divine service in the realm of Bina, intellect, or the divine service of self-sacrifice, reflected in the sphere of Chachma, the space of total abnegation of self, 
Or does this have to be experienced in the very place of soul essence, where the soul is completely bound up with God, comparable to the original matter of all things, as is the opinion of Rabbi Akiva. And above all of those, where Rabbi Eliezer holds, we must beware in our service of leaving the Egypt of limitations is in the realm of self-sacrifice. While serving God beyond the limitations of cold logic, there's still some calculation involved in one's divine service, and thus a limitation on the complete nullification of self in the ultimate experience of a divine service redeemed from the restrictions of a personal Egypt. The previous Rebbe related the story of a guy who was saying the Shema prayer and while extending the word Echad as is the custom and contemplating its intention and meaning, he nevertheless noticed the clock and calculated how long he had extended the word Echad for. It was almost an entire minute focusing on and contemplating the word echad and saying the Shema is supposed to represent the desire of and indeed reflect the act of self-sacrifice, not exactly a time when one should be noticing how long they spent doing that. More subtly, it's like he was engaged in the experience of self-sacrifice. In the experience of self-sacrifice, there should be no notice of self at all. Hence, this was not an experience of leaving one's limitations. And this is where Rabbi Akiva's edition of five makos comes in. Let's take a look at where Rabbi Eliezer and where Rabbi Akiva came from to better understand their positions. Rabbi Eliezer's name is an acronym for the words of Ezri. He was the son of Horkonus, who was a very wealthy man, son of Abram, Isaac, and, Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, in other words, a direct descendant who felt God's assistance directly. Rabbi Eliezer's study came to him with ease as he had a great mind and was one of the greatest sages. It did not occur to him that something negative could actually touch the essence of a Jew. Rabbi Akiva, however, was a descendant of converts, and so he concerned himself in his teachings with those who had yet to come under the wings of the Divine Presence. Or more specifically, Rabbi Akiva had a unique sensitivity and awareness of the power of the Divine Service, of the Yechida of the soul, and how one's animal desires could be ever so powerful to and uncontrollable. It was this awareness and approach of Rabbi Akiva that suggests that with the divine service one does with the yechida of one's soul, even the limitations that may lie therein can be broken out of, truly leaving Egypt fully, ultimately leaving the limitations of this final physical exile, as in the days when we left Egypt, we will once again be shown miracles.